This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. All eyes on uh, Toronto today, Queen's Park, where the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party is, uh, well, to use their words, trying to move on after the scandal and the Donald, the, uh, the Patrick Brown incidents, of course, uh, the uh, accusations of sexual harassment uh, that forced Brown to resign. they got to pick a leader. Uh, the stories, and this is not to put one ahead of the other, but obviously the story about sexual misconduct and the, uh, the, the women who come forward on this has to be front and center. But there is a political reality here that uh, the uh, PCs are going to have to deal with today. And there's some, we're told, internal squabbling about actually how to do this. Do you appoint an interim leader who's going to lead them in the election? Uh, somebody who can just look after things for a while until they have a leadership convention? And by the way, who's on that list? Joining us to talk about this is Pauline Benjamin, uh, who is a uh, lecturer at Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Pauline, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you for uh, calling. That's a, it's a tumultuous time, but at some point somebody's got to take the uh, the reins here and try to get something going. Uh, and, and, and we can talk a little bit about the speculation on this, but with an election uh, just a few months away now, June 7th, of course, is the date for the next provincial election, how does the party handle the current situation, and, and, and what options do they have? Well, first of all, uh, the parties start to prepare for an election well before uh, the actual uh, election. So my guess is that the Conservatives already have a plan uh, of how to win the election, and they are in very good financial shape. So I think the main thing is to... Uh, Present, uh, to pick a candidate who is going to be perceived as strong and who is going to be an effective uh, uh, debate leader, possible leader, uh, against Kathleen Wynne. There's a, a lot of names being bandied about, and we'll get into those in just a couple of minutes, but there's also some discussion going on uh, about who they should pick. Uh, there's a lot of talk that, well, it should be a female, uh, uh, it, as opposed to the, the leaders they've had in the past. And uh, d- Does that have any weight, and is that something that they'd have to give some, some consideration to, or do you just try to find whoever the best person may be? That, there's going to be there's always a lot of decisions on that. First of all, all women voters do not necessarily vote for a women candidate. That has been well demonstrated in many elections in Canada, the U.S., and Britain. So women do not necessarily vote for other women, meaning that uh, they look at a broader picture. Uh, how, are they, how is the economy going to do? How am I going to do? So necess- electing a woman isn't necessarily the way to go to attract voters and women voters. Uh, what about who is eligible for this? I mean, technically, we understand that everybody is eligible. I mean, past candidates, uh, there's all sorts of names, and you've heard them over the last uh, 48 hours or so, Paulina. Former cabinet ministers like John Baird and Tony Clement's names have been mentioned. Uh, Christine Elliott, who was a member and has left the, uh, the, the the caucus and gone on to other things right now. How far do they reach? Or does there have, is, is name recognition a, a factor here? Is that something that may be at the top of that list? Okay, I would be, this is just an opinion. Sure. I would, be surpri- I would be surprised if they pulled from the federal party, because then Ontario voters might perceive, oh, well, they, there isn't anybody good enough in Ontario. So I think they will pick somebody from Ontario as the first thing. Name recognition, the first, of course, that comes to mind is Carolyn Mulroney. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, while the Liberals and NDP will probably paint her as, quote, not enough experience. Mr. Justin Trudeau gave us a very good example of how to play, play, that, uh, play that question, because uh, Justin Trudeau consistently, when he was targeted for not having experience, he said, my father did such and such. Carolyn Mulroney had to do the same thing. But when you when you when you say name recognition, though, Pauline, is it is it her name that's recognized or her father's name that's recognized? And, and I guess that sounds like splitting hairs, but it may be important to voters. I, I think that's splitting hairs, uh, but that's my, just my call. It's a. Uh, it's interesting to see that, uh, and, and again, I mean, there's there's an apples and oranges comparison here, and name is always this. It's an interesting statistic I just saw here this morning. 
Uh, there's been some polling, and there's always polling going on, I guess, these days. That's just the nature of the, the political beast. But uh, suggesting that this, this whole Patrick Brown incident has so far, anyway, had very little impact on people's uh, decision as to who they were going to support in the upcoming election. In other words, if they were leaning towards the conservatives under Patrick Brown, apparently they're still leaning toward the conservatives. Uh, does that surprise you? Uh, no, because uh, voting decisions are not just based on one or two factors. Voters look to the past. How have I done in the last four years? How are my friends and family? How's the country done? And then they look forward. So who is leading is a factor, but it tends to be more or less a last-minute uh, inclusion in the uh, voter's decision. So, no, that is not surprising. And and that may well continue. Obviously, it's uh, still early days, uh, the, you know, the campaigns for the for that election coming up. And I guess there's an awful lot of things that could factor into that, maybe or maybe not change people's opinions. We don't really know. Uh, let's Let's talk about... The outsider faction, and 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 uh, for the sake of argument, I guess you have to include uh, Ms. Mulroney in that. But the other, the other names that keep coming up here, I know the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun have done some polling on this in the last twenty four hours or so. Uh, Christine Elliott, who we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, uh, Doug Ford, the uh, the brother of former Mayor Rob Ford, his name is up there now. He's always kind of kicked the tires and said that he'd think about doing this at some point. This is an opportunity. Does he take a shot at this? And is there going to be any interest on the party's behalf? Is there any interest in the party's behalf? I think they're probably beset by enough problems as it is without uh, adding another one, but uh, I, I would I would be surprised. How's that? Okay, uh, because obviously... He is, he is a well-known figure. His position to the right of center is well-known. If they feel that is necessary to put the push the party ahead, then clearly he'll be up for grabs, but... I'd be surprised if they if they did that. Well, one of the things that uh, that I guess Patrick Brown can count on in his legacy in the short time that he was the leader of the party uh, is uh, is the move more to the middle. They're, they're certainly not a centrist party yet, but uh, they don't have that hard edge that uh, that the Common Sense Revolution did or some others uh, subsequent to uh, Mike Harris that ahead, including uh, Tim Hudak. Uh, there's there are more centrist positions on things like LGBTQ issues and and and, and even the minimum wage increase. I mean, there's some discrepancy about how far they want to go with it, but they they seem to be supportive of that. It's all laid out in that platform that they just hammered out just a couple of months ago. Uh, is that what they go with, or is this an opportunity for them to to retrench and say, no, we want to go back to the to the way we were before all this stuff happened? Uh. Really, uh, I think they will stay where they are, but try to define themselves uh, probably in economic terms uh, because uh, clearly there is a massive debt in Ontario. And if they can convey to young voters that they are going to be the ones who are paying the penalty for the big deficit in the future, I think that could be important. So it's, uh, to, to use the old phrase from, from the, the 1990s, it's the economy, stupid. That's still going to be the, the, the thing they're going to hang their hat on here to, to try to, to woo voters? Yes, I think so. But, of course, they will address new topics as they arise. Uh, the other thing that is important is, uh, other than uh, where Patrick Brown has led the party in terms of policy, is that he has been a very effective fundraiser, and the party is in very good condition financially, which is a big part of any campaign. Well, they've got money to play with, and that's obviously important, uh, because which is one of the other elements of the debate, though. It's fascinating, and I'm glad you brought that up, Pauline, uh, because that's that's actually feeling the discussion about how they should handle this. Uh, there are some, we're told, within the, the caucus that are saying, look, we don't need a leadership convention. That's costly, and we don't want to spend our money on that. We want to spend it on the election to try to win the election in June. So they've got they've got a lot of decisions to make when they go behind closed doors today. Absolutely. So who gets to vote? Let's let's talk about one of the elementary questions that they're going to deal with. If in fact they choose an interim leader, and and Vic Fideli, who's made it known that he's interested in the job. Uh, he suggested that he would be the interim leader, but he wants to lead them right through the election. So I don't know how interim that is. Uh, but the the debate seems to be who gets to make this selection. Is it just the members of the PC caucus that are already in Queen's Park, or is it those 200,000 members that you just talked about a few minutes ago? 
that obviously would be included if there was going to be a leadership campaign and, and a subsequent uh, opportunity for them to vote at a convention. Uh, they seem to think it's either or at this stage, but they've got to make a pretty hard decision about that. Okay, uh, two, uh, two things. The first is that historically, party leaders were chosen by the caucus, that is, the members of the party in the legislature. Mm-hmm. So that wouldn't be a departure. However, that being said, the party's own, the Progressive Conservative Party's own convention, uh, constitution, party convention, and set of rules for governing the party dictates that. However, one more, however, is that even if, uh, and usually parties are chosen by members at large plus the caucus, this is an exceptional circumstance. So I will be surprised if uh, they don't come out with a firm leader, because as Vic Fideli has pointed out, uh, and I'm sure all the others of candidates have been thinking, this is going to waste leadership uh, conventions are very expensive. The only way that you can do it that's not expensive is to do a phone-in poll. But again, or phone-in or electronic poll, but again, that is distracting to the public. I don't think they want distractions at this point. The other element to that uh, is, is, as you've mentioned, with the uh, the advent of social media and, and the incorporation of, of you know, the electronic wizardry that we have these days here in 2018, most political parties have gone the other way uh, and tried to include everybody as, as much as possible. But as you say, the exceptional circumstance that they're facing right now may alter that. But uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, that that may well just be a PR gesture as opposed to, well, this is what we need to do because you know, we're kind of running out of time here. But uh, they'll, they'll obviously have to justify that. And I guess you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, no matter what they choose. Yeah, yeah. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, the popular thinking is well include as many as possible. Yeah. But again, if you really want your, if assume that you're a, uh, a conservative supporter, contributor, or voter, you just want them to win. Yeah, exactly, and that's got to be job one for them now. Uh, interesting discussions that they're going to be having about this, uh, the back and forth that's going on in this, and the bickering. Uh, the problem with leadership campaigns, and we saw this happen uh, during the last few with all the political parties, of course, is if candidate A is pitted against candidate B, invariably they take shots at each other during the campaign, and we've seen that come back to bite them because the opposition parties will use those clips during the campaign oh, itself. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you use whatever fodder <laughs> you can find. Yeah, all bets are off when it comes to these things, right? Absolutely. Pauline? And, you know, sorry, I'll just make one more comment. Yeah, go ahead. Parties, parties have been known to hire researchers to dig up dirt on their opponents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and you know that's going to be happening in this situation. And uh, sadly, I mean, that's that's part of the scenario. I talked about that in my commentary earlier this morning, that uh, when you throw your hat in the ring and you want to go into public life in an elected office, uh, you can and know that, that, that they're going to be looking at you uh, with a fine-tooth comb. You're under the microscope, uh, past, present. Uh, everything is going to be under scrutiny right now. So you got to figure that, especially with what happened in the Patrick Brown circumstance, that uh, whoever they do decide to run with here is going to go through that same sort of screening process. Yes. Uh, just to give a counter story, several years ago, I live in a riding uh, in the Markham area. Uh, there was a liberal candidate for federal office. He won, and it was then found out that he had been fired from the from a, a school board in Ontario for distributing hate literature. And he also, while in Ottawa as our elected candidate, wasn't showing up in the legislature because he was enrolled in law school in Ottawa. <laughs> but that only came out after he had been elected. You like to think that maybe the political parties do their homework a lot better than they used to then. I hope. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see just what they decide and how they justify Pauline, thanks for the time today. It's greatly appreciated. Okay. Thanks to you, too. Bye-bye. Take care. Pauline Benj, of course, a lecturer for the uh, Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. And uh, it's it's all going to be done behind closed doors. F- Vic Fideli, the guy, and we've had Vic on the show. He's been the finance critic for the uh, PC party for a number of years. Seems to be the front runner because he's already in caucus. Uh, well-liked, apparently, and uh, very eager for the job, as it turns out. Uh, everybody else seems to be holding their cards pretty close to their vest right now, not really saying exactly where they want to go on this. But uh, as soon as we get word as to what's going to be happening, of course, we'll pass it on to you. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's uh, been a head-scratcher as far as uh, Hamilton City Council's dealings with uh, the Waterfront Trust over the last couple of years, let alone months. But uh, some interesting movement uh, this week. First of all, we found out earlier in the week that the chairman of the uh, Waterfront Trust actually resigned last month, but forgot to tell anybody about it. The board didn't think it was, I guess, that important for the public to know about it. And uh, then the council decision on Wednesday to actually buy back the land that some people are suggesting that they may already have and exactly what the ramifications of that are. John Best has been following this story for years now. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his take on this morning. John, how are you today? I'm well, Bill. Thank you. Let's, uh, let me ask you about the chairmanship, first of all, when Bob Charters uh, stepped down in December. Uh, and, and, of course, we didn't find out about it until just a couple of days ago, which I thought was rather shocking. I mean, this is a, a board that's using taxpayers' money, and they kept talking about accountability. And I think the last time they appeared before city council, uh, the board member, now who's the chairman, uh, Jason Farr, the councilor for Ward 2, uh, was going on and on about transparency and we're going to do a better job, et cetera. And just a couple of weeks later, this happens. Uh, what's that tell you? Well, it it tells me it's business as usual. I mean, this organization never goes through the front door on anything. And uh, it's just, you know, more bad news. Uh, You know, I think you you interview people that have better PR credentials than I do. But uh, the one thing I do know about public relations, that if your strategy is that nobody's going to find out, it's a really bad PR strategy. Well, clearly. Uh, so they've moved on from that, and, and it was just, oh, that was a hiccup, too bad, so sad. But then, then the council decision on Wednesday, which I think caught a lot of people off guard, and if, judging from what I'm seeing on social media right now, it caused an awful lot of head-scratching. People say, what the heck did they do, and why did they do this? And that being, of course, uh, the council decision to actually buy back the land uh, that uh, the Waterfront Trust had leased uh, for the tune of, well, considerable amount of money. Uh, that uh, that essentially is going to go into the pockets of the Waterfront Trust. Uh, what's what's going on there? Well, I, I think the, the, the longer-term play is uh, essentially that the properties that are now occupied by the Waterfront Trust, the uh, former Discovery Center, and uh, eventually even uh, the Williams Coffee uh, operation, I think are eventually uh, the plan is to sell them uh, to a developer. So uh, they've, they've put in clauses uh, on both properties that have a ghetto clause. Uh, there, there's a 15-year lease extension on Williams, but there's also a ghetto clause. Uh, and also with the, uh, with the Discovery Center, the plan is to pay roughly 230000 a year um, to the Waterfront Trust uh, as, as paying out the lease up to $3, $3 million dollars. But there's also a clause there that if that property is sold, uh, then the then uh, there'll be a lump sum payment to the Waterfront Trust. But I guess the point is, uh, if you get rid of all those properties, now the question, which I've asked before, is what does the Waterfront Trust do if it doesn't even have the Williams Coffee Pub? I mean, what is the long-term play? Well, it you, sounds like it's to put it out of business. Well, this is the thing that I'm finding a little frustrating and, and quizzical. Uh, because they, when they were doing the planning for this this very, you know, high-level planning for Pier 8, uh, you know, the, all the stuff about this condo here and there's commercial here and things of this, they, being the city, made a point of saying that the Waterfront Trust has to be a partner in this. Well, if they just bought them out, why are they even at the table? Uh, hard to say. And, you know, and, and in terms of the buying them out, um, it, it, it's just part of a, a longer-term pattern. I mean, uh, to my mind, the Waterfront Trust is a creature of the city. Uh, this notion about it being an arm's-length organization, I don't think will hold water uh, if it ever got tested in court. Uh, what they should have done was simply dissolve the Waterfront Trust, and they could have saved the $3 million, because it's their, it's their organization. They control it. In fact, they just passed a, a governance uh, change that, that would cut out the uh, port authority. So it's 100% a uh, uh, creature of the city. All they have to do is wind it down and they can save, they can put their $3 million back in their pocket. Well, this is really just taking the money out of one pocket and putting it in the other, isn't it? Well, it's taking the money out of our pocket. and Well, yeah. It in, uh, yeah. So it's, the, the whole thing's crazy. Um, 
you know, I think we should stop calling it the Hamilton Waterfront Trust. It's essentially Werner Plessel and the two guys on council that are propping it up. That, that's what the Waterfront Trust is. It's not a room full of guys walking around with white hard hats on and, uh, you know, plans under their shoulders and uh, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's uh, all you've got to do is look at one of their meetings. There's three or four people sitting at the end of a boardroom table cooking all this stuff up. Then let's get back to the money for a second. Uh, you always follow the money and look at this and the 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 transaction and I'll use that term loosely that uh, that city council endorsed was as you mentioned uh, three million dollars payable over fifteen years and as you say the the exit clauses if that land gets sold in the meantime we already know that it's going to get sold because there's going to be development there so right. I mean that that's already written into this so I mean they're going to get a lump sum payment but what this does and I asked Councillor Farr about this the other day. It sounds to me as if this is just a backdoor way to ensure funding for the Waterfront Trust for the next 15 years. Well, it, it is, and uh, whether it's sole source construction contracts, I mean, let's not forget the, uh, the uh, $15 million worth of construction contracts that have been sole source to the Waterfront Trust. They're going to get a 10% commission uh, on those. So there's a, a million and a half that's, uh, that's going to be transferred to them. Yeah, and, and yet, with all of these transfers, and, and the, the one that made me laugh goes back a few years. The city gave, when they built the, uh, the, the skating rink, the city funded that, as they should. And, and they gave the Waterfront Trust money uh, to build it and also to purchase a Zamboni. Uh, then the next year, in, in a financial crisis, they bought the Zamboni back from the Waterfront Trust. The Zamboni never moved. It stayed wherever it was. But, you know, it's just, we've got a 10-year history here of, and I hate to say this, but city staff seemingly twisting themselves into pretzels, trying to find ways of transferring money to the Waterfront Trust without uh, a decent level of public scrutiny. And, and it's really sad to see. I, I watched the meeting the other night where this was being discussed, and very sad to see senior city staff sitting there trying to make this thing look like it's for real. Uh, you know, people that, that I certainly respect over the years and, and personally like, uh, twisting themselves into knots trying to make this thing work. Why? Well, political pressure. Uh, I've, I've never seen an organization that is so protected by, uh, you know, the sort of a, a power cabal on council. It, it, it's really quite distressing. But it's it's the money aspect that really bothers me because they, as you say, they're trying to find ways to to shovel money over there. Because for those who are just coming in on this conversation, the Waterfront Trust was established uh, because of that se settlement with the federal government, and so there was a big pile of money. That money's long gone. It only exists right now, and it only is allowed to do anything because the city gives it an annual grant. Uh, yet it's not considered a grant. It's actually considered a partnership. And, and, and over and above what's that happening here is, is this new thing now that's going to give them uh, about $226,000 every year. Now, is that going to be separate apart from the money that they give them? Because uh, that's about double then, I guess, that's what's happening. So what they've essentially done here, if that's the case, is doubled how much money we're going to be putting out for the Waterfront Trust every year. But even with 230000 a year, if you look at their financial statements over the last 10 years, uh, that would still have them not making money most of those years. They would still lose money, uh, if, even if they'd had the extra 230000 So it doesn't seem to matter how much money the city transfers to the Waterfront Trust, they cannot make a profit. They're simply incapable of making money. But they keep throwing money at it. Well, yeah, they do. And uh, I guess, you know, until the public gets exercised, I, I guess until people pick up the phone and maybe call the two counselors, Farr and Tom Jackson, that are, that are on this board, uh, nothing's going to happen because there's, there's absolutely no pressure uh, for things to change. I mean, I thought when, when the city became aggressive about their development down there, with the, and, and they seem to be moving forward on that, uh, with all the development and, and, and reaching out and trying to find private sector partners for this, that that might spell the end of the Waterfront Trust. Instead, the city is almost using this as a case to, to reinforce their partnership, uh, and I use that term loosely, uh, with the Waterfront Trust and have them at the table. It's almost as if uh, this is this is the, the, the kid that nobody wants to you know pick for the hockey game. They keep bringing him on and said, he's my kid brother, he's going to play. Uh, that, you know, that no matter what's going on here, always somebody says, well, the Waterfront Trust has to be involved. And I still don't see any justification as to why. Well, it's, 
it's kind of like the dead parrot in Monty Python uh, <laughs> sketch. Uh, it just does, you know, if BS was worth money, these guys might actually start turning a profit. But uh, it's just uh, really a, a governance travesty, the whole thing, the idea that it's an arm's length organization until it starts losing money and then it goes to dad for allowance. The whole thing is just uh, really a disgrace and needs to be dealt with. And, you know, it, it may take a. Uh, a reference to uh, the provincial ombudsman or something like that to finally get to the bottom of of things and uh, this is just a you know their city purchasing policies twisted into unreality uh, in order to support the organization um, just really uh, from a governance and from a a staff morale standpoint it's uh, it's just a bad uh, just a bad thing to have I want don't want to go too deep into the history of this, but uh, the whole idea of the work that, that goes on between the city and, and Hamilton's waterfront has uh, has been very cloudy and, and and a little shady over the years. And I'm going back to the days of Hamilton Harbor Commission, and you remember some of the investigations, John, that went on back in those days. Of you know, because there was always this innuendo about somebody was greasing somebody else's palm, and who knew who, and who got onto that board, and some deals, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, that were going on. Uh, I'm not so sure if it's any better now. They've changed the names, but it's just that scenario and that concern and that suspicion, I think, in a lot of people's minds is still there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go there, to be honest. I, I've never, uh, you know, and, and I, I hope I'm never uh, proven to be wrong, but I've, I've, I've always felt that it was more of a governance and an ego kind of a thing. I, I, I would hate to think that there was any uh, financial malfeasance. Uh, there's certainly financial incompetence, uh, uh, plenty of that. But I, you know, I've I've never made that that kind of an allegation, and I'd I'd be reluctant to to do that now. I I just think it's a governance nightmare. It's it's uh, I think it's more ego and incompetence. Uh, at least I'm, you know, it's a bad circumstance. So when you say I hope it's ego and incompetence as opposed to something worse uh, you know that's putting it in that level of perspective well incompetence i think is is an egregious circumstance here as well because we're talking about taxpayers money uh there's another element to this uh, that uh was not mentioned uh, in the meeting but it had to be on people's minds and that of course is what's going to happen with uh that restaurant down there with sarcoa itself that was not mentioned with the city council motion they simply talked about buying this stuff out and taking it over uh, Sam Destro, the uh, owner and partner in uh, Sarkor, was on the program with us just the other day, as you know, John. Yes. Uh, and he thought, well, this is great. This is an opportunity for maybe to, to reach a deal where they can part ways and, and find some sort of a settlement. Uh, I'm getting the sense now that council is not willing to even talk to this guy. They just think he's persona non grata now. I, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, uh, I watched, as I say, the uh, the meeting at which this was discussed, and 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 what staff kept talking about was unencumbering uh, the the reason for this transfer of money to the waterfront trust was to quote unencumber uh, these lots. Well, in April, uh, Sam Destro and his folks are going to court, and one of the things they're hoping to get is a, a declaration that the property is encumbered by the lawsuit. So you transfer a, a property encumbrance and other, you know, and and replace it possibly uh, with a legal encumbrance. So what, what developer, knowing that there's a lawsuit uh, launched, uh, would would uh, give you any kind of serious proposal for development as long as that uncertainty is there? So that, that's just another wrinkle on this thing. And uh, based on um, what I heard on that program with Destro and and Councillor Farr who followed, I I didn't hear a hopeful sign of uh, uh, some kind of a deal. Or anything, any any discussion about this, and and it opens up a whole other kettle of fish that that maybe they don't want to talk about, but at some point they're going to have to because Mr. Destro has made a number of of statements that indicated that this is what I was promised, this is what I was told I was allowed to do, and on and, and on and on. Uh, I don't even know who he talked to. I don't even know who he negotiated with with the Waterfront Trust to do this, and he feels as if he's been betrayed by the Waterfront Trust and by the city. Uh, because all of a sudden they turned on him and just said, now all of a sudden you're in non-compliance and bingo, you're gone. Uh, and doesn't think he, that hasn't even been settled yet. So there's there's a lot of work yet to be done here. And and council doesn't seem to want to pay any attention to it. Well, in in the course of putting the deal together with, with uh, Sarkoa, 
you have the lease, you have the you know the legal documents, but you also have there was a lot of back and forth between the Sarcoa folks and individual members of the uh, board of the Waterfront Trust. So there were verbal assurances given that may or may not have found their way into the lease. And, you know, that's certainly likely to be part of what you see when this thing, if and when this thing gets to court. I think you're going you're gonna to find out that there were a lot of wink-wink, uh, nudge-nudge kind of conversations that gave the Sarkoa folks some comfort, but they, at the end of the day, did not find their way into the documentation. The other element is is an accusation, I guess, is, is maybe the best way to classify this, that Mr. Destro made on this program many months ago, that he felt as if this was all part of a, a master plan for the city to basically squeeze him out because they had some other idea for that piece of property where his restaurant was, and they were jumping over themselves to try to do that. And, of course, city council denied that time and time again, but this action they took on Wednesday, John, essentially, I think, validates what Sam Destro was talking about. Indeed it does, because remember, from the city perspective, here's what they had in, in terms of the, uh, the Sarkoa property. They were getting $12,500 a year, so they were getting 1100 bucks a month. So, you know, what is the best, you know, how, what, what else could you do to increase the value of that? Meanwhile, uh, so when the city was getting 12500 a year, Sarkoa was paying something like $39,000 a month for rent and uh, utilities and uh, a whole bunch of other charges. Uh, the rent portion was eleven or twelve thousand. So Sarcoa was paying ten times uh, the rent that the Hamilton Waterfront Trust was paying the city for the same property. So yeah, I mean any kind of development would, in terms of the city, who are only getting eleven, uh, you know, twelve thousand a year. Almost any kind of development would be would bring in more revenue than that. And when you start looking at those numbers and you start looking at the uh, the, the position that the council seems to be taking on this issue, I I, I got to ask myself why do they want to go to court on this? I mean, they're either very right and he's wrong, or the other way around. There doesn't seem to be any gray areas here. There there's a very very big gap in, into what their story is versus what Mr. Destro's story is. Well, I, I think that's typical of any lawsuit. You, you look at the statement of claim, and you look at the statement of defense, and you think you're on two different planets. Yeah. So, you know, that, I'm, not, I'm not surprised with that and trying to predict the outcome of a, of a court matter. What, what we do know, though, is if this thing goes to court, there's going to be a lot of dirty laundry aired. Um, uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff revealed that isn't out there now uh, that, that could be embarrassing to some members of council in an election year. Let's not forget that we're we're only uh, ten months away from from an election, and if this thing is still burning hot through the summer and fall, it could end up being problematic. Well, we haven't even, haven't even talked about cost either. I mean, if if it is going to go to court, and it kind of sounded the way the councilor Farr was talking, as if they've already decided that they're not going to even have a discussion, they're going to wait. That's that's the impression I was left with after the conversation I had with them. Uh, how much is it going to cost? Uh, you know, guess, guess who gets to foot the bill for that? Well, and and in this case, this is a prime example where the, this, there's no question that the city is going to be picking up the legal tab eventually on this thing. There's absolutely no way uh, that the Waterfront Trust uh, is going to be able to handle uh, a prolonged legal file. They've already indicated on their financial statements that they, in the last one where they lost money, that they're... I think there was something in the area of 140 or 150 thousand uh, dollars. That will escalate as courts. You know, once you start getting into the court phase of these things, the costs really ramp up. So you know, uh, and and I guess that's the problem with seeing the city uh, buying back a lease from an organization that is essentially totally dependent on the city financially for its survival. Uh, this idea of arm's length. Uh, is is only only used uh, when when the organization is flush and and this organization has essentially been a dependent uh, of the city for at least the last ten years. It's puzzling to say the least. Uh, John, thanks as always for the time. Great talking with you again today. You're welcome, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump's in the news. Boy, there's a change. Uh, of course, uh, with some of the statements that uh, Trump made and uh, some of the meetings he had at uh, the World Economic Summit that was held in uh, Switzerland earlier this week. But today, uh, actually yesterday, the New York Times is reporting that, uh, that Donald Trump tried to fire uh, Special Prosecutor uh, Robert Mueller, who, uh, of course, is overlooking the uh, concerns about uh, possible election uh, hanky-panky that went on last November. Uh, Trump has often suggested and hinted that he'd like to get rid of him, and apparently he tried to at one point, according to the uh, the Times. Uh, not surprisingly, the president is denying all of this stuff. Joining us to talk about this, Laura Babcock, president of uh, Power Group. Thanks for coming in today. Good to see you today. That's my pleasure. This is a big story for those people out there who have Trump-Russia fatigue or Trump fatigue generally. This is significant because this isn't about just simply musing or his right to fight back or his desire to always, you know, uh, put out there what are possibilities. And he's a guy who obviously likes to fire and have control and loyalty. This is where they actually have reporting coming out of the Mueller investigation where people inside the White House said definitively that Trump ordered it and that it was actually the White House counsel who said, no, I'm not going to do it, right? And this brings back these memories of the Saturday Night Massacre with Nixon when he tried to fire all the way down the and line. And when they drew that analogy, and you've talked about it in, yeah. in past segments here, uh, people said, oh, he's not that stupid. He, he, even Trump would learn from history. Uh, he won't do what Nixon did. Apparently he tried. Yeah, and it's really interesting that I believe it's Don McGahn, the White House counsel, yeah. you know, that's managed to survive all of this. When you look at what happened to Sally Yates and you look at what happened to, um, is it Preet Bahara, the uh, New York attorney general, who was working on, I think, a money laundering case or at least some case, uh, and, and he lost his job. And then you look at the firing of Comey, which actually Steve Bannon said so clearly was, he thought, one of the biggest political mistakes in modern times. And of course, Steve Bannon now is out of the Trump circle. But he recognized that the firing of Comey would set off a chain reaction. And I think now we're seeing that with Mueller and the attempt then to fire Mueller. People thought oh, he would never do it. It would set off a constitutional crisis, all these other warnings that didn't apparently stop Trump. And this is this is so this is new. This is an actual action that he's tried to take. And when you look at it with all the other stories of the week, about declaring war on the FBI from Fox News and this story that came out about this, this Nunes memo and the secret society at the FBI. And there's so much, if you put it all together, there seems to be a real panic uh, about this Mueller investigation. And of course, we know that there's an imminent interview or at least a testimony sought from Trump under oath coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm trying to put context to this. And it, uh, I read the story, obviously, in the Times. Uh, and uh, time and place, and uh, they suggest this happened last summer, which was the time when Trump was firing people. That was mm -hmm. the, the the summer of the Friday afternoon firings, and there mm -hmm. were a, a series of them. Mm -hmm. And and the Times story indicates that this was actually one of them. And and apparently, I guess as you mentioned, a relatively new member of, of his legal team was the one that basically said, "You can't do that." Right, and apparently in the story, he was also thinking about firing Rosenstein, who was Mueller's effective boss after Jeff Sessions recused himself. Now, it could be that Trump is just used to having people he gets to pick and hire and expects loyalty, and, and that's coming from that business model. And he was elected to go up and change things. And so I think he, we will see from him that he is saying, listen, why can't I fight back? Why can't I have my own people in place? You know, I can understand his frame of reference going into Washington. It's a very different set of rules. What's really fascinating is the impact this is having on him at Davos, right? So it's the first time a president's gone to the World Elite Summit in Switzerland since Clinton way back in the day. And there was a big crowd, packed crowd, to listen to Trump a few minutes ago. And at the end, when he was doing his questions, uh, Q&A with the crowd, he brought up fake news. And there was booing and hissing from the global elites at the president of the United States at Davos. That's not insignificant because, you know, just a few minutes earlier, he, when asked about this Mueller, uh, this Mueller firing, uh, he said, you know, it's fake news. And so you can see that he is running out of, at least on a global level, this, this ability to pivot that every 
everything is fake. That when there's so much smoke, people start to look at it and say, hold on a sec, there's fire. So at very least, this New York Times story that he called fake news is taking him off message at Davos when he's trying to be, you know, Mr. Sell America. Why would he do that in Davos in light of the fact that it was at 48 hours before that that the Pope just went on record as saying, we've got to stop this. This is harming people. Fake news is, is a scourge. And, mm-hmm. and Trump is beating that horse again. Well, there was even that threat to CNN of someone who called fake news and was going to come in with guns, remember, this week, right? And the president kind of then called another CNN reporter crazy fake news. So this is obviously a line that has worked for him to dismiss any story that comes up that he doesn't like. There are people who don't trust mainstream media, and there's some good reasons for that. They, I think they've really gotten better at their game since, at their jobs since Trump came in and they were under challenge. But there are journalists who are dying around the world that are killed. And brutal regimes are using this. Well, if it's fake news in America, if the president can say that, then I can use that, right? It's an authoritarian tactic. And so to see the crowd at Davos actually boo the sitting president of the United States uh, just shows you that 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 line is not bought into, not as, as universally as he would like. The companion story to this was, uh, I saw this on Twitter the other day, the, the, the current director of the FBI uh, was also on record, and this was not speculation. This was this was him actually answering reporters' questions that he was being pressured by Trump to to fire people and to move out and threaten to resign if he didn't back off and simply let him do his job. That's right, and he was also asked, I believe, who he voted for, which again could ju- was explained as Trump just being Trump and just casual conversation. Uh, but after the uh, the Comey allegation that Trump wanted an oath of loyalty from him, it looks as though there is all kinds of pressure being exerted both inside the halls of power to stop this Mueller investigation at its root <laughs> any way that they can. But then when you add to it the external, so I come from a communications expertise, right? And so there's there's two tracks that are being followed here. There is the actual track of what can we do to stop this? And that certainly seems to be what's coming out of all of these stories. And then there is the track of, okay, well, if we can't stop it, how do we, how do we negate it? How do we diminish the impact of whatever's coming out of this investigation? And that's where you get the Nunes memo. And that's where you get the secret society rumor that was acknowledged could well be a joke yesterday by a a U.S. senator. That's where you get all of these attacks on the FBI, all these ideas of this dark, you know, where, where they talk about there's this different level of government going on. All this conspiracy stuff is meant to create such mud in the waters that whatever Mueller comes up with, uh, people are going to say, well, you know, uh, you can't trust the source on the investigation. So there are two tracks going on here. Let's use that word, and and the one that he's thrown around and and that James Comey talked about. The word is loyalty. Uh, And Comey talked about this during his testimony to the Senate committee, essentially saying that he believed in loyalty, but he thought his oath was loyalty to the United States and to the Constitution. Uh, whereas the the president is apparently asking for loyalty toward him. Right, which it's so Two different things. It is, and what's so interesting about the way the U.S. Constitution was set up is that uh, it was set up with the belief that the different branches of government would be checks and balances on each other. And so I don't think, uh, it had a lot of protections from a president being autocratic, right? But only if the other branch, the legislative branch, stands up to him. And I think what's really disturbing is as long as there's Republican control, we've seen way too much support of the Trump narrative and of defending this president. And you have to ask yourself, okay, uh, first of all, can these constitutional norms stand up when they're being challenged every day? Is there going to be sufficient checks and balances on this administration? It may come down to the voters in the midterm to retake the legislative branch just to exert those kinds of checks and balances. But when you look at the, as I said, this dual track strategy, which is so involved, really, I mean, we could spend all day just breaking down all the angles and all the messaging that's coming out. you have to look at it and say, what, what's going on? Is it just simply that Trump thinks that this Russia thing is shadowing his accomplishments and he's sick of it and he's just doing what he would do in business, which is try to shut it down? Uh, or is it something that he's really worried? There are three parts of this, right? There's the collusion angle, there is the obstruction angle, and then there's the money laundering angle. Is he worried about any of those three things being real? Who knows? Well, Bannon seemed to hint about that when he was talking about his discussions uh, mm-hmm. with the committee. And and all of those things came up, and Bannon did not deny. I mean, this there's the old analogy that you just talked about: smoke and fire. You know, if there's smoke, mm-hmm. is there fire here? Uh, there was a story, and I think probably you know from Fox News that, that this uh, whole investigation was starting to wind down. 
Uh, what Bannon said and what seems to be happening this week seem to indicate that they're ramping it up. It, it does. And also that idea of this is all just going to shut down. There have been reports that that's what Trump's legal team says to him so that he won't fire Mueller. This idea that don't worry, it'll go away soon. You don't have to do anything about it, right? Uh, and they keep extending that time frame for him. Apparently, that's that's what's being reported. When it really comes down to what Bannon said in Fire and Fury and, and his subsequent uh, discussions, this idea that it is about money laundering. And he pretty much said that's what this is going to come down to, right? Uh, we don't know. And we need to have an investigator follow it. But what's really important, I think, here in the discussion is that the people, the very people that uh, this this track of mudding the waters is going after, Mueller was the guy after 9-11, the, uh, the current director of the FBI, McCabe. He is the guy who found the Boston bomber, right? These are, these are true American heroes. These are law enforcement heroes. And the idea that it is okay to attack, diminish them just to be proactive in case something bad comes out of an investigation, that's pretty scary stuff. Well, because you've got a president who appears to be going after the very checks and balances that that, that the U.S. Constitution has guaranteed to try to make that system effective. Anybody who gets in his way is an enemy, not just right. of Donald Trump, but of the nation. And and the, mm-hmm. there are people that buy that. Well, the enemy of the people line, right, is uh, a line that apparently was banned in post-Stalin Russia because it was so pernicious, right? Uh, the idea that the media is the enemy of the people, some of this rhetoric that we're hearing. And you have to wonder, does he fully understand the historic connotations of some of what he says and does and the impacts around the world, like on journalists, for instance? Is it just him being Trump and being extemporaneous and likes to fight? Who knows? But it's not a bad thing that the norms of a democracy are challenged. You know, democracy is not something, it's not a birthright. It's something you have to fight for and earn and keep. And it's a pretty new model in some ways, the U.S. Constitution, the way it's set up. So every generation has to earn that democracy. And so it's not a bad thing that it's being tested by Trump. And he promised that he'd go in and do that. Uh, what we're, what's interesting, though, is to see the links that people are going to try to get this narrative of the Russia investigation uh, distracted from. And, and that's what's concerning. Uh, quite aside from the personal stuff. I mean, you know, we've, we've got the, the, the sexual innuendo and it's, it's reached into the Ontario legislature now, but the, that's still out there. Uh, and then, of mm-hmm. course, we've got a, a former hooker who now mm-hmm. has talked about this and there was the payout and, and nobody seems to be denying that. He seems to be getting a free pass on this. Uh, do you get the sense in the way he's reacting right now that he feels that the, the, the wagons are circling around him and, and the, the noose is tightening? It does seem that way. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of what looks like panicky communications, uh, not just from him, but even the Nunes memo was so ridiculous on its face and the pr- approach to that. Uh, th- there just seems to be so much happening. They're throwing everything in the kitchen sink <laughs> at the wall, seeing what sticks here, right? What What's going to finally, you know, even the release the memo hashtag, they tried that and then they found out Russian bots were pushing that. I mean, so there's so much going on. It does seem as though there's a little bit more of a heightened sense of panic. I have to say this, though. The whole Stormy uh, with the adult uh, porn star, she is actually going to be on a major show right after the State of the Union on Tuesday. I I think Jimmy Fallon's going to have her on, or Jimmy Kimmel. That's almost like a rebuttal to the State of the Mm -hmm. Union is having on Stormy. I mean, this is where America is right now. This is what he has done to diminish the highly held office of the presidency that that I bet you the ratings for her interview might might equal or beat those of the State of the Union, and that would be the goal. But you've got to wonder exactly how they're reacting to this. I mean, it's deny, deny, deny. You know, the book that came out is all Mm -hmm. fake. It's all false. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever happened there, notwithstanding the sources that are quoted in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bannon's comment. And again, it's deny, deny. The New York Times story is deny, deny. Uh, at, at some point, uh, there has to be some substantive, de- de- uh, I guess, pushback on this. I mean, he's got to come back with something if he has anything on this. Uh, I, I get the sense that, that there could be a dramatic change with the midterm elections this November yes. because if, in fact, he does testify, like he suggested he would yesterday, uh, all of a sudden, if he's caught in a lie, like Bill Clinton was, like mm-hmm. others have been, and there's a swing of the power structure in the House, in the, in the Congress, rather, uh, you're going to hear impeachment hearings. 
Well, I think if there's a swing of power, you will, for sure. Um, whether or not he testifies under oath or not, I don't know that he understands that just lying to the FBI whether you're under oath or not uh, is a problem, right? It's a crime. So uh, well, they're calling... ask Michael Flynn about that. Uh, yeah, and now they're putting out that it's a perjury trap. That's the line around that, right? Don't let him talk because it'll be a perjury trap because this is somebody who lies. He, You know, and, and that's on the record. There's no denying that. And so do you really want to lie in front of the FBI? No, you don't. But maybe Trump doesn't think he thinks in some ways he's immune to any kind of consequence. I think the consequence ultimately is going to be at the polls in the midterms or beyond that. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I don't see an end to this chaos and this muddying of the waters. But I will say there is a famous moment last night when Sean Hannity, Trump's biggest spokesperson, if you will, at Fox News, he certainly seems to be the guy who's doing his PR. He went on and said that the New York Times story about the Mueller firing order was fake news, fake news, fake news, had to come back after the break and say, okay, maybe it's not fake news, but uh, we'll deal with it later. And then he showed a car crash video. And so that will now be known as the literal and figurative car crash moment on the Hannity show and really on the Trump on the Trump uh, strategy of obfuscation and fake news. There's a sidebar issue. Let me get your opinion on this. How much longer is Shepard Smith going to stay at Fox? <laughs> well, Shep Smith taking he down the, the Nunes memo was and amazing. And not the first time he's done that. It isn't. And I think that for Fox News, for all the people who do work there who are not part of this, what seems to be feedback loop of propaganda for the White House, uh, there are real journalists there. He is one of them. There are others. And I think that he stays as, as a sort of a, a, a gasp of credibility for that network before they officially become Trump TV. So I, I hope he's able to stay. I think that there must be some of their audience that wants to hear his much more balanced uh, opinion. And he really talked about context in that in that little clip that's now gone viral. The uh, the media and the position the media is taking on this is, is always a fascinating element to this whole story uh, because it is polarized. And you've got Fox and you've got Lou Dobbs and you've got Hannity mm-hmm. that are basically cheerleaders for Trump. Then you've got MSNBC and you've got a number of folks over there, Rachel and others, that mm-hmm. are obviously giving you the polar opposite. And, you know, it's, just, it's the anti-Trump network in many mm-hmm. people's minds. Uh, and CNN seems to be obfuscating someplace in the middle, uh, depending on who you're listening to at any particular time. It's it's no wonder people are getting a little confused by where to turn. And it, it's that, I guess, indecision and, and that, that concern that a lot of folks have that Trump seems to be feeding into by saying, don't trust the media. Absolutely. And so where do people run to? People run to social media, right? Because they want third-party endorsement of ideas from their friends. They want to follow the flock of like-minded. And then you found out that there were Russian bots putting up those stories, right? So you can't even trust that place that you thought you could trust from the friends that you thought were helping to curate the news for you. So I have always encouraged people, even before the Trump era, critical thinking. You know, every reporter, as hard as they try, has some sort of bias that they're trying to fight through and fight past, and hopefully their editors can help. But then if things get editorial and editorial, it's messy. Nobody's perfect. There are a few reporters out there that have a perfect record of being completely objective. I used to be a reporter. It is a struggle. You really try. So don't believe anything on its face. Check a couple of different sources. Check a couple. Look for what looks like fact. But they don't do that. I know. I, it takes I saw you, did, the, you did on the Global Morning Show a week or two ago, and you were talking. You guys are on the panel. The overwhelming, I think something like 98% of the people that use social media only go to sites that, that agree with their right. particular Selective position. Selective perception bias is where you want to only hear what reinforces what you believe. And so there are ways around that. You can be almost passive and get, I make sure in my Twitter feed I have Fox News and others so that even though I have all that other stuff coming in, I also get the other side. We have to do that as a society. Remember what I said, democracies, even Canada's. You know, this is something we have to always fight for, and we only do it by being critical thinkers and actually putting the effort into our civic discourse. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Thanks again for coming in. Great seeing you. My pleasure, Bill. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.